Welcome back to our study of the Psalms. We are looking at Psalm 32 today. Psalm 32 is a psalm that means a lot to me personally. It's one that I've spent quite a bit of time with um, because I, I needed it. I needed to hear its message, its encouragement, its reminders. And so I'm excited to look at it together. Uh, psalm 32, beginning verse 1, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So he's pronouncing blessing, talking about the blessing that belongs to the person who not is doesn't claim to be a sinless person, right? But a person whose sins have been forgiven, a person who God has uh, covered their sin in a sense. Um, and at the end of verse two, so he says that three different ways, right? Basically saying three different times that there's a, a blessing that comes with our sin being forgiven. But then the fourth part of this pair of verses, that the end of verse two, he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I don't think he means, you know, this is somebody who's never lied. I think what he's saying is this, the person who's experienced this forgiveness and the blessing that comes with it is somebody who's not trying to pretend like they're sinless, who's not hiding their sin. And part of the reason why I think that is because of what he says next in verse three and four. He says, for when I kept silent, in other words, when I, when I tried to hide my sin, when I didn't confess my sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There he's talking about the, the anguish and suffering that he experienced when he had not confessed his sin, when he had not sought the Lord's forgiveness, when he had not been honest about what he had done. And while he was, you know, sort of keeping in the sin that he had committed, he was in anguish. He was uh, physically, it sounds like, even suffering. He's groaning all day, he says. And, and he talks about the fact that God's hand in verse 4 is heavy upon him. I think what he means there is, you know, God is convicting him of his sin. God is impressing upon him his need to repent and to confess. And because he's not willing to do that yet, David is miserable, right? And and this is a sort of um, uh, loving misery, if I can put it that way, that God is, in a sense, bringing about in David's life. And David has brought the misery upon himself by his sin and his refusal to confess it. But um, God is not letting David live contentedly in that sin, but he is impressing upon him the need to confess and repent so that David can experience the freedom, the, the cleansing, the joy that comes with being forgiven and being restored. And so uh, the conviction that God brings into our life can make us miserable, not because God wants to make us miserable, because God wants us to con confess and repent. So verse 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So out of that misery and that conviction and that suffering, David finally confesses his sin. He admits to God what he's done wrong, and he receives God's forgiveness. He no longer tries to hide his sin, 
but confesses it to God, and God forgives him and uh, takes away that sin. And so he's now free from that misery, right? He's free from that suffering. And it's it's a um, fascinating reminder that we often think that the real pain comes from admitting that we've done something wrong, done something sinful. But in fact, the real pain comes with refusing to admit it. Uh, the pain comes from the sin itself and then the suffering that comes when we refuse to confess our sin. But when we do confess and receive God's forgiveness and pardon, then there's so much joy and release and freedom that comes with that, that we're missing by thinking, you know, it's going to be so awful to have to admit this um, when instead it's actually quite free. Verse six, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So Hamilton in his commentary mentions that there could be a connection to the flood here in this mention of like the, the rush of great waters, um, right? And, and in the flood, there's this um, moment, right? When the door to the ark is shut and there's no more opportunity to be rescued, to be delivered. And that David is saying, look, you want to, uh, seek the Lord, you want to pray to the Lord while you have a chance, right? While there's an opportunity. So many people think, oh, I'm going to put this off until, you know, my kids are grown or till I retire. And then I'll really think about, you know, seeking God and reading, reading the Bible and going to church and you know, getting right with God and all those kinds of things. And what David is warning is that you don't want to wait like that because at some point there's going to uh be a, a time when that opportunity is closed and it may come sooner than you think, right? It may come uh, more quickly than you think. It may take you by surprise. You may not have the leisure to consider these things and seek God and try to, you know, redirect your life and all that kind of stuff. Like you think it, it might not happen that way. And so what you want to do is you want to seek God while the opportunity is there. You have the opportunity now. Right? You can seek the Lord now. And the Bible says, you know, if you seek him, if you'll ask, seek, knock, he will answer. Right. So um, don't put that off, David is saying. And then he talks about how God is a, a hiding place for him. He preserves him from trouble. So this echoes the idea of God uh, being our refuge uh, and our protector and that kind of thing. And then I love this last part of verse seven. He says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And that seems to indicate that, that God is is um, telling us sort of like from every angle, making sure we hear it loud and clear that he has delivered us, that he has rescued us. Uh, Satan loves to remind us of our sin, loves to, um, to speak lies to us and tell us we're not loved and we're not forgiven and we're not this and that. Um, but if you're a Christian, right, you have been forgiven. You have been rescued. You have been delivered. If you're in Christ, uh, God has delivered you, and he wants you to know that and believe it and hear it. So he surrounds us, right, with those shouts of deliverance. And then uh, in verse 8 and 9, this could be uh, God speaking to us directly, or uh, Hamilton suggests it could be David speaking to his hearers directly. Um, e either one, it says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So what's uh, being said here, right, is that in your relationship with God, in your walk with God, you don't want to be like a stubborn mule, right, where you've got to be reined in all the time, got to have a bridle in your mouth, got to be almost made to go the right way and do the right thing. You don't want to be like that. You want to be like someone who is, uh, you know, walking somewhere with a close friend who knows exactly where you need to go. And you don't have to be told, go this way, go that way. You just follow right along with wherever your friend is going because you trust them. You know they're going to take you the right way. And you want to be near them and you want to go where they're taking you. So in our relationship with God, we don't want to be fighting him all the time, resisting him all the time, wanting to go our own way all the time. Uh, we want we don't want to be stubborn, right? We want to be uh, willing and eager and trusting, knowing that God has our best interest at heart, knowing that uh, the best thing for us is to be near to him and to walk in his ways. That's how we want to live. And then verse 10, 11 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So again, I love that idea of steadfast love surrounding us, surrounding those who trust in the Lord. And then he talks about the gladness and joy and rejoicing, right, that we uh, should experience um, if we belong to the Lord, right? Now, uh, normally we connect what's going on in the psalm with Jesus in some way, and, and I still want to do that, but with a little bit different angle on it. This time I want us to look at how this psalm points to the salvation that we experience in Christ, the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. And there's a few key words I want you to, to notice here. First of all, early in the psalm, he mentions blessing, right? Blessed is the one who's transgressions are forgiven, right? So blessing, forgiveness. And then he, he also says, um, the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, that, that word counts is important. And then uh, toward the end of the psalm, he talks about trusting in the Lord. And those four words um, come together in a, a really important way that helps us understand not only our experience of salvation, but its similarity to David's experience of salvation that he's talking about in this psalm. Paul uh, brings this out for us in Romans chapter 4 when he's talking about what it means to be justified by faith. And justified means uh, that you've been counted right by God, right? Counted right before God. Uh, and he talks about how that's possible for us because of what Christ has suffered on the cross, that he died so that we could be justified and God could still be just, so that God could declare sinners righteous without himself being unjust, because Christ took our punishment for our sin on the cross. And then he talks about how uh, this is not a new idea, right? But that this is also how God treated Abraham back in Genesis 15:6. It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham was counted righteous by faith. Paul quotes that in Romans 4, 3. And then he says, um, verse 5 of Romans 4, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you have believing, faith, trusting, right? And also this idea of counting, being counted righteous. 
just as, he says in verse 6, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So you have blessing and counting, you have faith or believing. And then he quotes from Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So there's two sides to justification. There's Abraham being counted righteous by faith. And then there's David saying, God doesn't count our sin against us. And in both cases, we're talking about those who trust the Lord, right? Who trust in God. So it's by faith, not by our works, that we are, uh, that our sins are not counted against us. We are sinners. We are ungodly. But God doesn't count that sin against us. Instead, he counts us righteous in Christ. He he counts Christ's righteousness as ours by faith. And what he's saying is, again, this is not a new idea, but this is how God worked with David, and this is how God worked with Abraham. That when we confess our sin, and when we trust in God, our sins are forgiven and we're counted righteous before God. That's the way the gospel works. And we see it in Psalm 32, and we see it in Genesis 15, just like we see it in Romans chapter 4. So if you've not experienced that and you've not uh, turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, David's encouraging you, right? Lay that burden of sin and guilt down. Cast it before the Lord. Confess it. Acknowledge it to him and ask him to forgive you so that you can experience that blessing and freedom that comes from forgiveness. Or if you're a Christian who's been in rebellion, been you've walked away in some way, you've, you've sinned in some significant way, and you're feeling the weight of that guilt, David is reminding you, there's freedom that comes with confessing it. The pain doesn't come with confessing. The pain comes with trying to hold it in, trying to hide it, trying to pretend like it's not there. All right, finally, how can we pray from Psalm 32? Remember to confess your sin. So David's talking about to give thanks for the forgiveness we receive and to rejoice in what God has done in forgiving and cleansing us through his son, Jesus Christ. God bless.